And then Instagram comes about. And then there's Instagram, there's Instagram stories, there's IGTV, there's the feed, there's Facebook Live. So there's all these different tools in the last two years that have been presented to us that have are forces that have affected the way real estate is being traded on, on a daily basis. We have DocuSign and .loop, which are digital contracts. So I have represented sellers in the half million dollar price point that I have never, ever met. Wow. From beginning to end, never met. and made like a $20,000 paycheck. Hey everyone, got a great interview for you here today. Brian Tessier is Zillow's number one rated and reviewed real estate agent in all of Pennsylvania. It has translated into some serious business. We toured his beautiful home in Mount Washington. We checked out his cars. He is living large, but he's also working very, very hard. In this conversation, we talk about how he got his start, how he flipped houses, how he worked with some of the best coaches on the planet, and the diligent digital first approach that he takes to running his project. There's a really cool story about 20 minutes in about a transaction that will just blow your mind. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think you're going to take a lot from it. Whatever you may be pursuing, whatever you're trying to do, there are sales lessons in here. There are marketing, branding lessons, lessons about life, value, business. You're really going to enjoy it. You can get even more of those at the Going Deep Summit March 23rd. We're hosting it in the city of Pittsburgh, fast closing in on our mark of 200 tickets sold. We're going to end it after that. So go get yours if you've been meaning to. And in the meantime, while you're scrolling to goingdeepwithaaron.com slash event to get those tickets, enjoy this conversation with Brian Tessier. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Brian, thank you so much for doing this, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Well, I appreciate you having me. I'm usually on the other end, so this is nice. I know. Um, I am so excited to extract all sorts of wisdom and nuggets from you, but I want to start off actually explaining one of my assumptions. So you are a real estate agent, and in these types of businesses, it is my assumption that when you started off, it wasn't about marketing and branding. You started off and you just had to hustle. You had to make it happen for yourself, starting from square one to get your business off the ground. Now you're the top Zillow agent in Pennsylvania. You have all these accolades. You were speaking at the um, event in Vegas just last week. But when you started off, can you paint a picture for everyone of your situation and what you had to do to get your real estate business off the ground. 100%. Um, so the first thing I was doing is I was flipping houses. This is probably about 15 years ago before flipping houses was cool. And there were before even fa Facebook didn't even exist. Instagram didn't exist. None of these social media platforms existed. YouTube may have been in its infancy. So there was no video go to videos. So I wanted to become a real estate investor and flip houses. So I took a couple courses. Uh, there's American Congress of Real Estate that meets in Pittsburgh once a month. So I went there, took some courses and they said, even if you're going to have contractors come in and do all the work, you should do at least two houses as much you can with your own two hands so you get an idea of what things cost so when you start hiring people out you don't get the wool pulled over your eyes so i flipped two maybe four or five houses and i would be a little different like some people are high volume flippers where they just you know do a little bit of lipstick on a pig and flip it and sell it so i would take about a year i take on the super ugly ones and i would um live in them as soon as they were habitable so some of them didn't even have flooring like no carpet no tile no hardwood as soon as we would get heat i would move into it because what happens is you get hit with capital gains tax that's the profit you make 
on that house, you get hit with like a 25% tax in the first two years. So if I could change my mailing address to that address, I could start the clock running as that being my primary residence and minimize the amount of capital gains I would get hit with. So that's one little tr tip and trick um, that I used to use. And I used to get all my stuff at Home Depot and Lowe's and they would have used their credit card, no interest, no payments for a year. Well, I would get the house, start it and finish it within the year. So I basically used all of their money to, for the materials, most of the materials to flip the house. Right. So as I, as I did a couple houses, I um, said, I'm always looking at ways to improve. I think that's the true, uh, I think that's a fabric of any entrepreneur is how can I, or business owner, how can I maximize my profit? How can, and not just profit to take and buy nice suits. I mean, so you can and build your business a little bit further, bring on another employee, open another office, whatever. So I'm always thinking how, and even in, in, as a realtor now, I think how can I shrink, increase my margins and shrink my debt? Um, one of the ways was to get my real estate license. So I would buy it, pay myself to buy it and sell the house. So before we get into the real mm -hmm. estate license, when you're flipping these, let's call it five houses, mm -hmm. And you have the two-year window where there'll be capital gains tax, but you were setting up the address there. Were you doing one at a time subsequently or multiple at the same time? One, one at a time subsequently. My father was retired. We only had so much um, at money and time to do that. So I was, un I guess you could say I was unemployed, but I was a real estate investor doing that. So we, the profit, I think the least I ever made was 20 grand profit. And the most I ever made was like 80 or 90 grand profit. Wow. So it was pretty substantial. And that's why you really wanted to shrink that capital gains down as much as possible and increase your margins, which, which I'm going to lead into now is why, what the gateway to me become a real estate agent. So I got my real estate license and I would, you know, capitalize on that by paying myself to buy that house and then only paying half the commission because I didn't pay myself, obviously. Then the flipping business became somehow like a flashlight was shined on how great Pittsburgh was. When I first started flipping houses, I could go on the MLS and there were 10, 15 houses I could choose from that had a great profit margin in my mind where I could just buy it, take a year, flip it, and then buy the next one. That was called a buyer's market. Yeah. Then as time started going on, these flippers started coming into town and I couldn't find any of those houses. They all dried up and went away, so I couldn't find anything that had a minimum of a $20,000 uh, profit margin. Because if I'm going to work a year, I need to at least be able to put $20,000 in the bank for the next house. So flippers came in, YouTube got bigger, TV shows came out, and it basically pushed me out of the flipping business. So as it stands now, I have about $50,000 worth of tools in my parents' garage collecting dust. <laughs> but if you ever need your backsplash, Todd, I'm the guy to do it. Yeah. Um, so then what happened was I started representing some of these flippers as a realtor. And I'd made the decision that I'm not going to be able to flip and be a real estate agent at the same time. The flipping has kind of gone on the back burner until the market changes or forever. And and that's also something just to just mm -hmm. to put a bow on that is a very intensive job. Like the the, yeah. the the illusion with almost every industry, but particularly for some reason with real estate and where it's like passive income and things like that, you kind of get this perception that you can just kind of sit back and let it happen. Does not sound like that was in any way a passive experience for 100%, you. 100% not. I mean, just think the market could shift. And this happened. The market shifted before I got into real estate where it went into the, it went into the proverbial crapper. So we had flippers that had flipped houses on the market that they bought out of foreclosure and went back into foreclosure. So when you're flipping houses like I did long periods of time, you got to make sure you have a profit margin built in there. So if the market took a dip, you would still come out a little bit ahead. And that's why I always lived in it. Uh, I always wanted to be able to live in it is because of it. 
if it dove um, and I had to eat the house, I would just be able to live in it. It's, it's like a backup plan, yeah. like a security plan. It's it's also like the idea of a paper loss versus a real loss. Right. If if you're holding a stock and it goes down, it's only a real loss if you have to sell at Correct. that point in time. But if you're living in it, then you can say, well, now's not the time to sell. Let me hang on to this for another 6, 12, 18 months. Correct. Right Absolutely. On. You always have, I think anytime I do anything, I always have a backup plan. Now people may say that sounds like you're preparing for failure. I think, I think not. I think it's intelligent. I mean, I want to have an out that's yeah. going to be able to clean up any mistakes I've made or minimize any damage. So, and I, I anytime I see flippers that I'm representing as a listing agent, I tell them the same thing. I'm like, we, we've got to be careful. You don't want to overspend. The market's going to shift. How big is your profit margin? You know, what do you have built in, et cetera. Right. So you got the real estate uh, real estate license to reduce the or make the margins better so that you could take some of that commission for yourself and you realized that it was time to end the flipping game and get into real estate full time what was on on the other side the positive signal that you're like oh I can do this. I can make some moves. So I decided my business plan will be aimed towards the younger generation. Nothing towards the older generation, but the older generation has a ceiling. They're only going to be able to buy so many houses before they're not going to buy houses. The younger generation is going to buy a whole lot of houses. So what I ended up doing was um, I used to sit brand new construction open houses for on a team for an agent bigger than myself. And I would just read these magazines that came through on real estate on what to do. And one of the things they recommended was uh, Zillow reviews. That was going to be the big thing. So as soon as I started selling selling some houses, I would automatically get these Zillow reviews. And this is, I don't know, maybe six years ago. So I've been chugging along all these years getting these Zillow reviews, which I then push out on social media. And we all know we're review-driven buyers, I I would think, or or renters or whatever it is. Anytime I go out of town, I'm looking what's, even if I'm not sure I believe the review, I still want to see what the worst one is. I want to see what the best one is. So that's when I made my decision is to go after younger people. I knew they would be looking at reviews of a product, of a service, something like that. Anything online is what I adapted. That technology, it doesn't matter what the technology was, as soon as it came out, I adapted to it. Drones, GoPros, 360 imagery, I don't care what the technology is, I'd usually jump on it right away to give me the advantage over everybody else and be able to you know, uh, appeal to the younger demographics, so to speak. And then of course, social media has come along. When I first started, there was no social media. I sat at open houses every Sunday. It doesn't matter whether it was 20 degrees or 120 degrees. It doesn't matter if there was a Steeler game on or not. I would go put my, this is where we're going to talk about the grind and what I did before yeah. on social media. I would put open houses out hours before the open house. I would go knock on the neighbor's doors if it was in a neighborhood the day before and just hand them a flyer and say, hey, I'm Brian Tessier. Uh, I'm with blah, 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 and I'm going to have an open house tomorrow between 1 and 2. Why don't you stop over before that? Because I didn't want the neighbors to bog down my potential buyers. So I would invite them to come before the real open house. And then um, I would throw these lavish open houses. Now, when I say lavish, I mean Pittsburgh lavish. Yeah. So this is like hood lavish. This isn't million-dollar listing lavish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had a speaker. <laughs> if it was cold out, I'd have – I schlepped my coffee pot in and hot chocolate, and I had a speaker, music. I always had a candle. I had balloons on every sign. And if it was – hot outside, I'd have little water bottles just to kind of keep them at the table in the kitchen so we could just have a chit chat. But also you are on display. You are a, um, you're being interviewed by them if they're a seller. So I've actually picked up sellers from open houses because they saw how hundred percent I was all in. Yeah. It's, it's a great representation of the work that you put in to see all those little details covered in people like that. Now, so, so I'm guessing another aspect of letting everyone in the neighborhood know, not just when those neighbors would come in so that they could go through and you could find the real buyers, but there's also a, a social phenomenon 
of you might know someone who wants to get in your neighborhood if it's a good neighborhood and they'll go call Jack, Susie, whoever and say, oh, there's an open house for a place in in my neighborhood tomorrow. You should come by. And they're almost like a a potentially de facto sales force for you. Right, exactly. That's one of the scripts we used was, hey, you get to pick your neighbor. And whenever I would send out just listed cards, I would in that neighborhood, I would say when the open house was and sometimes my title would be pick your neighbor, help me pick your neighbor. Now's the chance to improve the neighborhood. Yeah. Just little, little things like that. And they would become a salesperson for myself. Gotcha. And and all this stuff, and, and this is like a, a framework, you know, we've done more than 300 episodes of the show and I keep coming back to it that all this stuff seems very simple and straightforward, but that by no means makes it easy. It's hard work to do repetitively, consistently with discipline. But a lot of these things are really just that a discipline as opposed to being so complex that someone couldn't piece it apart. Would right. you agree with that assessment? 100%. There's nothing complicated about um, having an open house, having a coffee pot there, and just being able to talk to people. It, it's kind of a grind. Nowadays, I think a lot of people, and I don't mean millennials, I mean anybody in general wants to do as least amount of work as possible, make as much money as possible. I know another agent that he doesn't have physical open houses. He has virtual open houses and he's not really getting much traction. I said, you know, they want to interact with you. You have to have two things, passion and personality, and you can't get that, you can only get so much of that through and video where you need to actually be in the same zip code, the same airspace as the other person and, you know, slap some skin together, shake a hand and see if you're a fit. I mean, I've won over many buyers that weren't ready to buy at that open house. It took me 18 months to incubate them, but just because I had great personality and we may have had something in common and they felt safe with me, it's all about trust in the sales industry. If I trust you, I'll buy almost anything from you and I'll use you forever. Yeah, trust is trust is a huge deal, but let's talk about that 18-month incubation because right. that's another part of the grind, and that's the type of thing that if you are able to accomplish it a couple times, you start to get the framework, you realize it can continue to happen, and then you're going to set the proper practices in place. But early on, it's not only hard to be patient, but it's hard to have faith that that can occur right. if it hasn't yet happened for you. So talk a little bit about incubating these people over that period of time and what that looked like on your end. Right. So incubation, National Association of Realtors has done studies and they've, they've proven it takes 18 months from the time the thought first goes in a buyer's head that hmm, we should probably buy a house to the time they actually take the keys and, and grab possession of it. So there has been someone else, I slipped my mind who it is, that they have said that sometimes I get the deal because I'm the last man standing. So if it's a buyer, I'm the last person that has been in touch with them to the very end when they decide to make uh, the move. And if it's seller, I'm the last person that they talk to whenever they're ready to list the house. It's a lot easier now than it's ever been to be able to stay in front of sellers. And that's one of the reasons why I have such aggressive branding and I'm so aggressive and consistent on on social media is because I have a lot of buyers and sellers that come to me just because I'm always on social media saying, I sold this, I'm listing this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, It's basically staying top of mind. So if you can do that throughout the 18 months, you're the last man or woman standing, chance of you getting the deal is great. And if they already liked you from the beginning at the open house, it's it's not hard. So you were really just playing the sales playbook for the first at least year. When did things start to turn, whether it's from a momentum standpoint, a reputation, maybe inbound referrals, and you started to recognize the impact of not just being a salesman, but also a marketer and a brander. Right. So I've only been in real estate 12 years, which is not a lot of time. I'd say the first um, six years, I probably only sold 
two houses a year and two of those are my own flips. So I really sold nothing. So it, you had to, I had to sell flips just to be able to have an income, but I saw the big picture. I saw it was going to turn around. And I said to myself, if I can make it in this slow, crappy market, when the market turns around, I'll be banging. And wouldn't you know, that's exactly what happened. The first five or six years, I struggled, slowly started getting momentum. I joined Remax, and then social media and video and all that started taking off. So I've only been successful for about six years. And then you could just see your income going up. And I, the way I built my business was I would spend little money. I FOC, free of charge, was always my theory. I didn't want to spend any money on marketing. I wanted to shake hands, kiss babies, get out there and grind it out so I wouldn't spend any money. Again, goes back to my original point of always trying to maximize my margin. If I don't spend, but I can still make money, I'm in a great position. And then over time, you know, your income grows, your income grows, and then you can have extra overflow cash where you can start buying leads or getting professional headshots and, and using paying someone else to do photos, videos, and drones. Right. So I'd say about six years ago to answer your question is whenever um, it finally started turning around. So six months, you start to recognize that there's a budget for this stuff. Six years. Six, I'm sorry. Yeah. Six years. I wish it was six months. <laughs> six years, you start to recognize that there's a budget for this stuff. And you have not only been very aggressive with this, but you've gone out and sought coaches, sought mentorship, sought frameworks so that you weren't just maybe discovering naturally through your own experimentation, but quickly adopting not just the technologies, but the strategies, the tactics, the playbooks of other people who had found success in using social media to build their real estate business. Can you talk a little bit about why that was the approach you took and how you did it? 100%. I mean, I, and my egos or most people's egos are never so big that you can't learn from somebody else. You can never know everything. There's no doubt about it. So once I got extra cash, there was the number one real estate coach out there. I've heard about him for years, Tom Ferry. So I always knew once I get extra money, I would be able to take his those courses. So I decided to get coached for two years and it changed it changed my life. It changed the way I've, I've done business. It gave me budgets. Because um, as an entrepreneur, as a realtor, you are accounts receivable, accounts payable, marketing, inventory, you are everything. So they help you structure that. They help you structure your day. So it gives you structure. It helps you overcome some things you're afraid to do, like maybe calling expireds or FISBOs. They give you the blueprint. FISBOs? For sale by owners. Okay. Yeah. So for sale by owners, they're trying to sell their house by themselves. And what you do as a realtor, you kind of get your way in the door and you don't say, hey, I'm the best. I want to list your house. But you may say, hey, I'm here as a resource for you if it doesn't work out. Um, here's kind of some of the things you should be doing. Yeah. And it'd be like drones, stuff you know they're not going to do. And then again, it goes to that last man standing thing. If I stay in touch with them, by the time they are, they throw in the towel because they're just tired of trying, tired of trying to sell it themselves, Brian Sells Pittsburgh is there to pick up the pieces. Yeah, yeah. See how that works? So another aspect of this, and I want to get back to the coaching, but right. but as you were saying something, something just kind of clicked for me. You had the houses that you were flipping on the side early on. And once your business got to a place where it was humming a little bit and you were getting at least an income where you could survive and be comfortable and maybe start investing in some other areas, you had the luxury in... in perhaps both of these instances to not be desperate. So what someone might go, what might do when they come to the for sale by owner uh, character is be really pushy, kind of like you said, and that's going to turn them off and be like, come on, come on. But by being able to be patient and coming with an attitude of, I'm not going to get everyone. If this isn't the one, it's not a big deal. Probably 
translates into the entire interaction as being much more pleasant and probably ends up actually leading to more people wanting to work with you. But the core of that is setting yourself up to not be in a place of desperation, a place to be comfortable and patient. And I'm, I'm curious both early on and then later on, if that's how mindful you are of cultivating that kind of perspective. Right, Aaron, you hit the nail on the head. I, I actually mentor some people offline and I try to tell them something the coach has told me that has stuck with me forever. And that is when you go into that listing appointment, you have the mindset that they need you more than you need them. So it doesn't matter where you are in life. If I need a positive paycheck to paycheck, I gotta have I have to walk in with a swagger, not ego, swagger that I have what you need to get the job done. And that's what I did whenever I was making no money. And that's what I do now when I go into listing appointments. I go in, I prove I'm the expert. I do that ahead of time. Most people already know me because again, social media, yeah. branding, social proof. consistency. Yeah, social proof. I mean, it's you can't hide whether you're a success or a failure with social media nowadays. So I already have that swagger going in, but I go in there and I don't let them know that huh, you need me, I don't need you. But I make it so that I am bringing in a wealth of knowledge, experience. I've seen everything, and I could prevent you from going into a black hole, falling into some legal battle, whatever. And I, that's one of the ways I prove that you need me and I don't need you without actually saying that. And once you do that, it's, it's easy to get a buyer or a seller to um, work with you. Yeah. So back to the coaches and how you went about. So clearly the, the one character was just like the number one real estate coach or had effectively branded himself as right. such to get you yeah. in there. But in, in terms of seeking those characters out and what you looked for to know that this was the person you're going to part with some hard-earned dollars to have them coach you, but that you knew they could help you take things to the next level. How did you evaluate that? Right. So Tom Ferry had already done all his social proof to realtors. So he is the gold standard that you as a realtor are trying to accumulate 12 grand a year to be able to part with and justify in your head that you're going to be able to make 24 grand off of this 12 grand by investing it in coaching. So he already has all of us with his ads following us around the internet, his um, podcast, his vlogs, his emails with the vlogs coming into my email. He has a lot of the top realtors and he talks about it. He was smart and wrote a book. So now he's an author, which I'm actually looking into. So you want to be able to get Tom Ferry to coach you. It's almost, you almost um, seek him out. Makes sense. Social proof. And then I have a social media coach yeah. as well, Katie Lance. And I saw her at the Remax convention years ago. And then I followed her. So I would research these people before I decided to part with my hard earned money. And it took me years to finally decide to let $12,000 a year go, which is a lot of money for Tom Ferry. And then, but in, in hindsight, I don't do it anymore, but uh, it was well worth the 12 grand. So, and anytime anybody asks me, I'm like, I highly recommend getting a coach. It's going to change your life because there's no way you do everything uh, effectively daily. Like they would have me write out my hours yeah. of each day and what I was doing. Yeah. Make me read books. I mean, they lead you too. They give you the tools for success. They give you the scripts for open house. They give you the scripts for FISBO. They give you the scripts for buyers. They, the one class I went to, they made me, all of us as an audience, stand up and repeat the script five times to each other. Yeah. It, it, practice. So it was getting you know, nailed in our head and we knew what practice looked like. Me telling you to go read the script five times is different than me making you do it right in front of me because now you know what you're supposed to be doing. Exactly. It's great. Coaching, highly recommended. Any 
any industry. I love it. At least for a part, like I did two years. And then you can kind of, you know, you grow your business and you can kind of phase out of it if you feel it's not working for you. Anymore. And hope, hopefully some of that stuff will be internalized. And then, you know, back to it being simple, but hard. It's, it's about the discipline to repeat that stuff. Right. Maybe you need to tune up in another couple, two years. Maybe there's a couple new things from a new coach or new source that you can put together. But that, that all makes a lot of sense. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about, given that real estate is a sales business, I have a framework that we talk about at Piper that people buy for one of three reasons. They buy because you are of the highest quality. They buy because you are the cheapest or they buy because you're the easiest. And where I like to sell is where we can be the easiest. I also think we're the best. I also think we're of a very high quality, but being able to make things easier easy on the other person as opposed to a race to the bottom. I do some coaching with some uh, entrepreneurs at the University of Pittsburgh, and they're in these different competitions, and they're always selling on the fact that they're the cheapest, they're the least expensive. And I mean, that's a bridge to nowhere. That's a race I to the agree. bottom. Unless you can get scale, being the cheapest isn't really as good as you might think it is, which is understandable if you're early in the game. Can you talk about how you navigate those three kind of uh, dials of quality, ease, and uh, price as people maybe come to you with objections as to whether or not to work with you? Right. So the pricing is easy because we all... We all charge the same commission. It's either 5% if you're a listing agent, 5%, 6%, or 7%. And that depends where your property value falls. If you're a low property value, you get charged 7%. If you're high property value, you get charged 5%. Now, you may have some uh, newer agents. When I did this, as well, uh, whenever I first started, I would offer the cheapest. I would say, hey, I'll do it for a half percent less, but I had no tools. So again, social proof is where it's at. So I am the expert. I have multiple designations. I have spoken at different events, which I make very public so everybody knows I am the expert. And it's been drilled into me by my coaches. If somebody knows you're the expert, they'll be willing to pay for it. And I'm not asking you to pay more. Yeah. I'm just asking you to pay market value. It's I'm the same commission as the... The agent over there that just started three years ago or the agent over there that has been in the business 50 years but has no idea what Snapchat even is. Exactly. So it's, it's no different. So you kind of said that you haven't been in the game that long, 12 years. That's still plenty of experience in the, the real estate industry in general, the Pittsburgh market. You've seen these ups and downs of buyers, sellers markets. But I'm more curious at a macro view Outside of the advent and the adoption of social media, what other forces are acting upon the real estate industry, maybe Zillow uh, as example, that people outside the industry might not really appreciate, but you have had to look at um, in terms of a changing landscape as a real estate agent? Well, I mean, I tell every seller when I go in to list their house that the way the tools we have available to us to market their home to the maximum changes almost by the week. I mean, there when I first started listing houses on Facebook, people thought I was freaking nuts. They that they, they called me stupid and what the heck you doing that for? And then all of a sudden, Facebook takes off, and now it's a necessity to be able to market on your Facebook business page, share it to your personal page, and then Instagram comes about, and then there's Instagram, there's Instagram stories, there's IGTV, there's the feed, there's Facebook Live. So there's all these different tools in the last two years that have been presented to us that have our forces that have affected the way real estate is being traded on, on a daily basis. We have DocuSign and Loop, which are digital contracts. So I have represented sellers in the half million dollar price point that I have never, ever met. Wow. From beginning to end, never met and made like a $20,000 paycheck. 
how, to put it in. How put is in that possible? Can you, can you tangibly make that? Absolutely. So what happens is a seller saw me on Instagram posting all these higher end homes, um, showing that I do drone work, professional photos, and I would be constantly putting it on, on my Instagram, constantly promoting it. And then I finally sold it. And then I put all the stats there, how long it was on the market, the list price, sale price, and all that. And they saw that and they loved that. So whenever it came time, and they had been following me for years, and this is, this is a key point for um, people out there on social media. They think you're going to have social media and you're just going to get the immediate gratification. You've got to consistently post this stuff for years and keep it interesting. So whenever it came time for them to uh, get relocated because of a job thing, they immediately, because I'm top of mind, they keep checking my Instagram feed because I'm interesting, contacted me through Instagram, direct messaged me. I said, they said, we, we carry a very busy schedule. I'm like, listen, if you have a door, uh, garage door keypad, they said, yes. I said, you can trust me. Just give me the code. I'm going to go walk through on X day, X time, and so I can do a market analysis. Did, did that, walk through, came back, did the market analysis, emailed it to them. They said, well, listen, X price, whatever. I think it was like 500000 Sent them the paperwork digitally, and they just had to touch it on their phone. They don't have to do anything. As soon as they're done with that, we each get a PDF of what they just signed. I call a photographer, give her the keypad code. Goes on and photographs it. The drone guy does his work. They send it all to me, put it on the MLS, sits for a couple months, um, and then it finally sells. With the um, closing documents, the closing company sends it to them out of state, wherever they move to. They sign it uh, in front of a notary. Then they FedEx it back overnight. They get a check into their, they either get a check mail to them or they get the funds wired into their account. Never met them. I don't even think it had their phone number. Wow. I mean, that's rare. I mean, it doesn't happen all the, all the time, but. Wouldn't you take that? Listen, in the beginning of the conversation, I was saying I had to make $20,000 on a flip, right? Yeah. I just made $20,000 and never met the person. That's wild. Mind-blowing. And that's just from Instagram. I mean, it's from social media. And the reason, like, that story epitomizes why I do this show. Because the, I have a, another kind of philosophy that I use, that creativity is just access to information. Right. If I've never heard that story before, then I don't have the creativity to say, you know, maybe outside of real estate, but industry X, industry Y, this entire transaction can be handled without the two parties ever meeting. Oh, absolutely. And, so, and somebody who's never heard that story is like, that sounds ridiculous. But that is the fact that you can speak to it. And this isn't some small kind of insignificant sale. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm selling on eBay my $20 toaster, half a million dollars. Big deal. And that's still a big sale even to me today. Uh, in yeah. a Pittsburgh market, our average sales price is like 160000 So 500000 that's pretty substantial. Absolutely. That is that is awesome. Yep. So let me ask one more question, and then we'll aim towards wrapping up here. And this is just, once again, my ignorance as it pertains to the real right. estate industry. I, I go into these different spaces for interviews, and there are a, a surprisingly wide range of things that people are very quick to offer. I find that people are get, becoming almost more and more transparent and, and just generally carry themselves with a willingness to help others right. um, out and about. Are there, and you don't have to like give me the actual number, but are there numbers that real estate agents keep close to the vest for a perceived competitive advantage? Because as, as I was kind of studying you and I've watched you on social media, you're out there with a lot of it, this is the address that I'm listing. You just shared some of the prices of the of the buildings and on one of the pages it says like your average sales price, how long the average house is on the market, which are all positive signals for a potential seller. But are there are there things that like it, it's unwise for a real estate agent to share because of reason X, Y, Z? Um I don't know. I mean I 
I make it a, a point to think out of the box and to act out of the box. So if everybody goes left, I always go right. So yeah. that's why you probably won't see too many people posting their stats. A lot of agents think that's braggadocious, but my coach tells me it's branding. It's not bragging. It's branding. It's not bragging. I've had buyers and sellers both tell me they've seen my stats on my email signature and they love it. I post those stats in my closing. Some of the stats aren't even good. Yeah. Days on market, one year. It's not even good. But people like the fact that you're showing that you're uh, fallible, so to speak. Yeah. And sometimes on my Instagram stories, I'll even post uh, my income and I'll post um, all of the expenses that it costs me to operate. And I just don't believe in taboo. And I want younger agents and younger entrepreneurs to understand that, you know, just I'm driving to McLaren and have this and live here and all that. Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of money made, but there's a lot of expenses that I've got to pay to get there too. I think that's something I didn't learn in school was, um, you know, how to balance a checkbook or to understand. And I think a lot of people come out of college with credit card debt because they don't understand you have to pay that shit off. So uh, I want to make sure I'm transparent to everybody. And I don't think a lot of people, a lot of agents are transparent. So, um, I don't know why they'd hold anything near the vest. I mean, it's your social proof. It's your resume. If you look any agent up on Zillow, that information is there. It shows how many listings we currently have. It shows all of our past sales. We can't change that. That is uneditable. I don't know if buyers and sellers know that. If you look up any agent on Zillow in America, in the continental United States, their stats are there for all to see. Wow. It's, I can't change it. I can't go in and add sales. I can't take sales away. There's Zillow reviews of us, current listings, sold listings. They're all pinned on a map of where we sold. It says how many years we've been in the business. It says um, how many sales we've had in the last 12 months even. So, so that's really interesting because part of what we're doing with Piper is being super transparent about like we, we, we posted a video on our first day. It was just me and Hannah. We we're like, we're starting a business. <laughs> we're, we're working out of our homes like right. for now and, and still figuring this thing out. And th- it, it's brought in so much goodwill to us. And we've had people be like, oh my gosh, like you're, you're telling people that you don't have an office. You're telling people that it's just the two of you. It's like, I mean, that's what it is. Right. And it's refreshing. Like I'm, I started this based off a thesis that I thought it would work. It seemed like it made sense. But for someone who has found so much success in their industry to also embody that philosophy is reassuring for me. But I also think it's helpful for other people to feel a little more confident opening the kimono or, ju- or just sharing where things stand because as you said sales is built on trust and it's not always that people are buying for quality or the person with the biggest list of potential sales it might be just you're easy you're nearby and i trust you because you're honest 100 percent. i mean that's the coaches even tell me that i even have that in my, a lot of my abouts especially on zillow the tr- most trusted agent zillow trusted agent because that's a that's a key word that's a hot topic for a lot of buyers and sellers Makes sense. Um, I just remembered one more question as, as we're going on here. I apologize right. for, right. for going on. So different skill sets. So real estate, once again, as an outsider, this all kind of rolls together, but there's a house flipper, there's a real estate agent, there's a real estate investor, right. um, and probably a dozen other hats that I'm missing. But the idea that being skilled in one does not necessarily guarantee that you are skilled in another area. You're obviously a very effective agent. Do you also do real estate investing? How much of an overlap are those skill sets in terms of the full tool belt? Right. So I used to do the flipping as we covered pretty extensively. I don't for reasons I've already discussed. So that is the extent of my real estate investing, so to speak. I do not have rentals because I just don't want to deal with that. Um, And I don't do flips anymore for the reasons we said. But that flipping, and I didn't realize this, there's a lot of times 
Aaron, you may do stuff and you don't know what the result's going to be. You don't know why you're going to do it. There's a lot of times I do things and I'm like, I'm just going to try this like an A-B test. I'm going to yeah. try this and just see if anything comes out of it. So I flipped homes to have an income. But what I didn't realize is it was building an education in my brain of what things cost. So now when I take first-time young home buyers such as yourself out and they're wide-eyed whenever we're going through all these houses, they're like, oh my God, yeah. I'm going to part with $125,000 of my money. I could tell them that the roof's in great shape, hot water tanks, you know, it's not good. Foundation's great. So if I can go in there and kind of uh, if I didn't already have their trust, I'm going to gain their trust by like not being a salesman. I'm going to be like their father or the, uh, their parent and say uh, that, you know, you guys look at the paint colors and see if your furniture fits. I'm going to look at the roof, windows, hot water tank, furnace, air conditioner, and foundation because that's what's going to cost you the most money. You know, the roof's more at the uh, end of its life than, than the beginning of its life. So, you know, when you select an agent, I mean, there's no real way for a buyer to maybe know that, but um, I've always said it, hashtag who you work with matters, and it really does. Absolutely. Well, Brian, this has been fantastic. I feel like I just, you know, rang all the juice out of a piece of fruit with all this wisdom that we got. So thank you for giving so much of yourself to this and so much of your time to us. I want to make sure that people can continue to learn from you. And so I want to provide the digital coordinates where they can best do so. Digital coordinates, Google, pull up www.google.com and just search Brian Sells Pittsburgh. Should be pretty simple. The brand is consistent across LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, it should all be Brian Sells Pittsburgh. I mean, if you can't find me that way, uh, get a new computer. <laughs> uh, awesome. We're going to link that all in the show notes for this episode. Cool. Goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast is the easiest place to find it for this and every episode of the show or in the podcast app where you're probably listening to this. But as we do at the end of each conversation, Brian, I want to give you the mic one more time for an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Right. So I'm going to make sure everybody understands this. So whether you're a young person just getting into a business be getting a job, working out, or you're an older person that's maybe trying to rebrand themselves. What I find uh, works for me the most is once I become comfortable, I become stagnant, I feel I become average. Average isn't necessarily bad. You can be making a lot of money and have a comfortable life as average, but if you're looking to be the best, if you are competitive, you have to get out of your comfort zone. What I mean by that is make yourself uncomfortable. If you wake up every morning, have coffee in your jam jams, watch TV, answer a couple emails, that's comfortable. Something that makes me uncomfortable, I like to share with the audience, is public speaking. For years, I've had nightmares of you know being in front of, on, on a stage at high school with just my underwear and everybody laughing at me. So uh, somehow that has made me uncomfortable in public speaking. So what I do is a couple times a year, I'm offered to speak at REMAX conventions or in front of other REMAX people or other local agents. And I take that opportunity to sometimes create a presentation for them or sometimes just sit on a panel where I will be in front of 250 other people that are... Or, or I used to be one of those 250 and now I get to give back and I just... My palms are sweaty. I've got a bead of sweat on my forehead every single time when I'm on stage or wherever it is in front of a whole bunch of people with hundreds of eyeballs just looking at me, waiting to see what's going to come out of my mouth. Um, why I'm so scared of that, I don't know. But it's making yourself uncomfortable. When I'm done, I feel like I threw on an extra layer of thick skin. You know how they say you need thick skin? I feel like I've got an extra layer of armor. I feel like I've grown from every time I accomplished that um that fear of public speaking. I love it. Well, I'm glad that you continue to push that edge because there's a ton of wisdom here for you to unpack and share with other people. Thank you so much for coming on Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I appreciate it. I hope, hopefully people got something out of it. Absolutely. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. 
Hey, thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope that conversation fired you up, that you learned something, that you were inspired. Uh, we're hoping to give you a little bit more of that on March 23rd at our event. Here's what people are saying about the Going Deep Summit. I would say that it's not for everyone, but it's for anyone. It's for people you want to make a genuine connection, for you want to step out of your comfort zone, if you want to get comfortable being uncomfortable. It had that down-to-earth vibe where it didn't matter how big somebody was or how popular somebody was, you could just go up right after and just pick their brain, get some ideas, tell them, tell them how much you like their presentation, and I thought that was a really huge element. I would explain the Going Deep Summit as a melting pot of people and ideas that come together. And it was just one of those events that really impacted me because I was exposed to so many different concepts that I wouldn't have necessarily otherwise been exposed to. One of the things that I really liked about the Going Deep Summit is when the presenters were up on stage, they just presented and provided a ton of quality information. A lot of the times you go to other conventions and it's like they start presenting and then it's just all sales pitches. So it was really cool to see every single speaker. Not one of them really did a sales pitch at all. Another thing that I took away was a couple new friends. As I was standing in line for lunch, we were able to connect with people that were standing near us, and we probably would have never met besides that. But it united Pittsburghers and people from outside the city alike, which was really interesting because I would have never um, met people in a different industry than myself. There are also so many people that I met at the Going Deep Summit that I also wouldn't have otherwise met. It kind of made me reflect on, like when people talk about Pittsburgh, they talk about uh, how, you know, it's a technological revolution, like all these great things are going on in Pittsburgh, but it's all buzzwords, it's what they put on the headline of the newspaper, but I feel like I went there and I was meeting those people who are actually trying to do the things to make that statement true. So it didn't matter, I didn't realize there was going to be people from such a diverse range of uh, industries, so you know, there's people talking in technology, there's people in politics, there's people just regular good dudes who had a good life story, you know, and um, I didn't realize I was going to be participating in it as well and I was gonna be outside of my comfort zone. Cause it's hard to get me outside of my comfort zone. But there were some things I was doing and participating in that you know, put me outside of my comfort zone. It made me feel like I was a part of it. It's easy. Google Going Deep Summit to learn more about the event and buy your tickets.